You're listening to the Thesis Review Podcast. I'm your host, Sean Wellick. I'm a postdoctoral researcher at the University of Washington, and my research focuses on machine learning methods for generating and reasoning with natural language. On the Thesis Review, I'll interview researchers from around the field, centering the conversation around their PhD thesis. In addition to exploring the technical content, this will give insight into their history as a researcher, allow us to revisit older ideas, and provide a valuable perspective on how their research and the field itself has evolved since their PhD days. My guest today is Lisa Lee, who is a research scientist at Google Brain. Her research focuses on building AI agents that can learn and adapt like humans and animals do. Lisa's PhD thesis is titled Learning Embodied Agents with Scalably Supervised Reinforcement Learning, which she completed in 2021 at Carnegie Mellon University. We talk about her work in the thesis on reinforcement learning, including exploration, learning with weak supervision, and embodied agents. We cover various topics related to trends in reinforcement learning, how language can play a role, and where research is headed in the future. The thesis review is available on SoundCloud, Apple Podcasts, Google Podcasts, and Spotify. If you're enjoying the show, please leave us a five-star review on Apple Podcasts, and be sure to follow us on Twitter at Thesis Review. To support the podcast, go to patreon.com slash thesis review, or make a one-time donation at buymeacoffee.com slash thesis review. There are links to the thesis and the papers that we mentioned in the show notes. Here's Lisa Lee with Learning Embodied Agents with Scalably Supervised Reinforcement Learning on the thesis review. into your PhD thesis, um, what was your background even before the PhD and what even, you know, made you want to do a PhD? Yeah, um, I started out as a pure math major at Princeton, but uh, I also found uh, coding to be a lot of fun. So I took a lot of computer science courses, even though they didn't count towards my major. And uh, my first uh, research experience was uh, through an NSF REU program at UPenn and the Grass Robotics Lab. Uh, this was in 2014, uh, one year before the first deep reinforcement learning papers came out. And uh, I was uh, implementing Q learning on a ground robot. Um, and uh, yeah, back then, uh, people weren't running RL on robots, so it was uh, quite new. Um, and then mm-hmm. in 2014 and 15, I was really fortunate to work with Professor Sanjeev Aurora at Princeton um, on word embeddings for my undergraduate senior thesis. Um, and yeah, th- that was, um, uh, we were working on compression of natural language into low dimensional representations by using simple co-occurrence statistics of words and text. Um, and it's a very simple objective but results in very rich structure uh, in the word embeddings that you learn. Um, and I guess after undergrad, I worked at Google as a software engineer for a year, and then I decided to get personal PhD after that. Uh, so it's yeah, mix of yeah math and uh, yeah machine learning research uh, and yeah and I guess software engineering before mm-hmm. I started yeah. the PhD. <laughs> yeah, I actually did my undergrad at Penn, and I always used to walk by the oh. Grass Robotics Lab. It always looked wow, cool. <laughs> small world. <laughs> yes, yeah, so you were you were mentioning like Q learning. Do you remember kind of like when the first results started to come out with like deep Q learning and the Atari games and all that. Do you maybe remember like 
what it seemed like. I remember it seemed like a bunch of stuff was about to get solved and like the world was shifting. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Um, yeah. The Yeah, I guess it started out with Atari and then uh, continuous control in Majoko environments. And um, yeah, I was really excited to see uh, yeah, these intelligent agents uh, learning these high dimensional tasks uh, that yeah we have we just hadn't seen this uh, before. So then, so you had like the robotics experience, but then also NLP. I guess like during my own PhD, I I got interested in reinforcement learning early on, but then moved to NLP. So it seems like you maybe did the the opposite and chose reinforcement learning. So how did you, or like going into your PhD, did you kind of know that you want to focus on reinforcement learning or? Yeah, um, I was pretty open in the in my first year. I was exploring yeah NLP and computer vision and RL and uh, yeah my advisors uh, Russell and Salkutunov and Eric Shing, they're very. Uh, they're very open to, uh, they give me a lot of freedom to uh, yeah, work on anything I was interested in. So I was really fortunate to have that freedom. And I um, I guess uh, in my first, uh, starting from my first year, I worked a lot with a fellow PhD student named Emilio Perestoro. And uh, yeah, I think that really influenced me to work on RL. Um, but I, yeah, I guess um, I think uh, vision, language, and RL are all very important problems. Also, uh, but I guess it's hard to work on everything uh, during your PhD. So. Yeah, definitely. And then, so yeah, so then the subject of your PhD thesis. So the title was "Learning Embodied Agents with Scalably Supervised RL." So we've had a few guests on talking about reinforcement learning. But it's actually been it's been a while. So, could we start just start with with some of the basics? Like, what is reinforcement learning? And then starting to look into your thesis, like, what are the kind of like the high level aspects or areas that you eventually started to focus on? Yeah, the standard definition of reinforcement learning is that you have an agent interacting in an environment, and it tries to take actions and at least to a next state, and it tries to maximize some reward function, uh, uh, which uh, re- which gives the agent some scale a scalar reward based on the action it took and the state it ended up in. And uh, in my thesis, I focused on how to make uh, reinforcement learning work on more complex and real world, uh, guess, continuous control applications. Uh, um, for example, many assumptions that you assume in RL don't hold in many real-world situations. Uh, for example, the assumption of a reward function. Uh, in practice, uh, reward functions are hard to hand engineer. And um, so one uh, question I looked at was, are there alternative ways to supervise the RL agent uh, in a more scalable way? And um, another uh, example, um, uh, in RL, you optimize the reward maximization objective, but um, are there alternative uh, alternative objectives that you can instead optimize? Yeah, I, uh, in general, I found it helpful to think about the end result and uh, p- potential applications of my research to uh, choose problems that I think are important. Mm-hmm. I see. So yeah, like the continuous control what would 
some of the um, like practical applications be for that? Yeah, um, so in continuous control, the actions are uh, continuous values. Uh, for example, in robotics, it would be like the joint, like torque and velocity. Uh, so it's very low level actions of uh, the agent uh, learning how to control its robotic body. And mm -hmm. it's, uh, it's placed in some environment and it has to solve some task. Um, robotic locomotion is one example where uh, I guess half cheetah is uh, the, a very simple example where the agent has to learn to control its joints to uh, walk forward at certain velocity or another task could be to try to run as forward as fast as possible. And uh, another example would be a robot manipulation uh, task where you have a long robot arm and it has to control all its joints to, uh, for example, um, move objects from location A to B. So like day to day, are you doing experiments mostly in like simulated environments? And like, what's your sense of the gap between the simulation and what you'd face in the real world? Yeah, um, yeah, there's a lot of uh, a lot of gap between sim and real environments. Um, I, uh, yeah, in terms of how I approach uh, experimentations and researches, uh, it's usually easier to start out inside simulation, but uh, have an idea of how to scale this to a real world environment or how to transfer this. Uh, if you learn a policy inside sim, uh, will it transfer to the real world? Um, and uh, yeah, differences between sim and real. Um, for example, there's many things you can do inside simulation that is impossible in the real world. For example, you can reset the state of the simulation environment. Uh, so you can like teleport the agent to some, uh, any state you want. And uh, the, uh, you can um, uh, run uh, environment interactions much faster. So the cost of um, the agent uh, interacting with the environment is a lot cheaper uh, inside them. And you don't have to worry about safety constraints uh, that uh, in real uh, you would need to worry about. And inside sim, you also have access to the physics parameters of the world, and you can also change these physics parameters however you want. And uh, in some simulators, uh, such as Brax, uh, you can even differentiate through the physics parameters of the environment, which is very powerful. Um, mm. And in contrast, in the real world, um, there's uh, much uh, noisier and more diverse observation spaces. Uh, uh, especially uh, visual observations are and object interaction uh, are much more complex and rich. And uh, the real world is inherently multi-agent uh, due to the existence of other humans and other agents. And uh, there is a lot of non-stationarity, uh, for example, wear and tear on the robot. So the uh, dynamics of the environment will be constantly changing. Um, so uh, there are a lot of uncontrollable factors in the real uh, that makes uh, sim to real and yeah, learning in the real world much more difficult. Mm -hmm. I see. And then, yeah, like in terms of when you were getting started, where were things kind of at uh, in the sense of like, were the types of robot, uh, like real world robots that you were using the same ones that you're using now or were they different? And then like, were the types of tasks that you viewed as being challenging any different? 
Yeah, um, so before 2015, when DeepRL uh, began, um, uh, there was a lot of feature engineering for robotics and um, and for multitask generalization, I think research uh, focused a lot on like, for example, like change in environment dynamics, such as uh, like friction coefficients changing or robotic wear and tear, uh, which are very difficult problems. But um, I think now there's even uh, uh, even more high dimensional problems uh, being tackled in terms of multitask generalization, uh, for example, like visual and image-based generalization and language understanding, which are a lot harder. And, and we also don't do feature engineering anymore. And we try to learn it from large data uh, and compress it into a smaller representation. So is the like the shift to the multitask setting, is that because we got good at single task or is it more that, that like in order to operate in the real world, you have to learn kind of multiple tasks so that it's a diverse enough, like robust policy? Yeah, great question. I, uh, yeah, it's both. Um, yeah, in the real world, you will have to learn many tasks and generalize to many different uh, like object types and uh, different dynamics and different robot bodies, uh, different lighting settings. Um, mm -hmm. And um, yeah, um, uh, maybe like as one example, um, I like, is it also because we got good at solving single tasks? I think this is true for Atari. Um, we, I think the state right now is that we can solve, uh, we can learn each Atari game very well, but we are still trying to train a single agent that can solve all Atari tasks. Um, and yeah, um, the problem of transfer learning and multitask learning is still, um, still very difficult, I would say. Yeah, that makes sense. Kind of going on this idea of multiple tasks or multiple skills, or just like general problems in reinforcement learning, like the first chapter is about exploration. And you develop this method, which has to do with state marginal matching. Could we just like uh, break that down a bit and unpack it? So you said like the work contributes a method to measure, amortize, and understand exploration. So yeah, kind of like what was the general problem uh, that you were solving here? And maybe just like the backstory of how you started working on it. Yeah, um, so state marginal matching is a practical algorithm to learn a policy that uh, matches the state marginal. Um, for example, if the target distribution is uniform, then you want to maximize state entropy. Um, so how this connects to uh, prior work uh, at this time at the time was um, uh, the paper by Hazan et al. in 2018, uh, provably efficient maximal entropy exploration. Um, they yeah they showed that uh, maximizing state entropy is good, but um, their method assumed uh, access to an oracle density and looks at tabular settings. So uh, one uh, one focus of this project was try to scale. Uh, state entropy maximization to uh, higher dimensional settings. Um, and in terms of uh, yeah, measuring and understanding exploration, there has, there has been a lot of work on exploration algorithms for RL. Um, and one class is intrinsic motivation, uh, like learning an intrinsic reward to encourage the agent uh, to do good exploration. 
the uh, this uh, the state marginal matching framework was a uh, one way to try to unify all these exploration algorithms to understand why they work well in certain settings, but uh, sometimes fail to scale in uh, as you scale to higher dimensional settings. So uh, and uh, I guess uh, there's we also didn't really have a good way to measure what is good exploration. So the state marginal mm. matching objective was one way to measure uh, that. Um, yeah, so like one of the is like one of the key ideas, I guess, is your the policy that you have has this. I mean, it produces a distribution over actions, and you could explore through that action space. But then this is kind of saying that like what you want to do is make the states that it visits as diverse as possible or as close to some distribution as possible. Is that kind of the the idea? Yeah, yeah. So. Methods like soft actor critic, they do exploration by injecting noise into the action space. Um, and the pro of this approach is that you don't need uh, you don't need to learn a state density, which is required if you want to try to maximize state entropy. Um, but um, I guess one possible weakness is that many actions could result in similar transitions uh, from state to state. So the exploration might be slower than if you were just trying to visit as many states as possible. Yeah, I, I really like this idea of it, it's almost defining, like you said, a, an objective for what exploration should be, that you should be visiting different states according to some target distribution for how you should visit the states. So then like these different methods, like the exploration bonus and the mutual information, are they kind of still useful in practice and are they kind of like special cases of this yeah how do we think about these these different methods it, the methods on expiration bonus and mutual information uh, yeah they are very useful and we could think of them as special cases and what's different uh between say like the prior work and state marginal matching is that they don't have the state entropy maximization term in their objective um mm. And which could explain why they don't scale uh, uh, to higher dimensional tasks. Uh, maximizing state entropy itself is uh, very is a very difficult problem because you need to do density estimation uh, of the state observations, mm -hmm. and you need to have a good representation of the state space, uh, which you might not have uh, in a lot of real world scenarios. So, mm, I see. So then, yeah, one question I had with this is like, is specifying the target distribution, is that difficult in practice? It seems like we might not always actually be able to write down exactly what the target is. Yeah, um, it can be difficult if your uh, state dimensions are uh, like, yeah, uh, very high dimensional. Um, one, I guess in... In the FIRL paper, which is a follow-up, we uh, tried to get the target distribution uh, from the expert demonstrations. And this is also um, what uh, many um, other works do in uh, imitation learning and inverse RL settings where you have access to expert demonstrations. Then you can try to learn a policy that matches the expert state distribution. Um, mm. and. I guess the weekly supervised RL paper uh, that was in the second section of my talk, um, that's another way uh, we could 
try to maximize the uh, entropy by learning a uh, disentangled representation to specify uh, to the agent uh, along which dimensions should you do exploration and which dimensions don't matter. Uh -huh. I see. Yeah. Yeah. That was kind of an interesting. Um, yeah, this was another interesting section. So I was looking at like this one diagram where I think it like lays out the different factors of variation. And so what was the idea here? It's, it's that like you obtain some annotation from humans on different kind of like low dimensional factors within the state. Yeah, the motivation is that um, unsupervised learning, uh, like, for example, state marginal matching could be inefficient in very large state spaces, uh, for example, uh, the space of all pixels. So how can we winnow down the space of tasks and learn in a more scalable way? So the solution here was to learn disentangled representations uh, of the image observations uh, from weak labels provided by humans. And uh, the humans are asked very simple questions about the uh, images that don't require any expertise about the task or um, about RL. And so you can easily crowdsource this type of data and collect it in a scalable way. And mm -hmm. the end result is that we can learn a semantically disentangled representation using these weak labels and then use these use this representation for faster learning and exploration. Between these two projects, were you applying them to kind of like similar problems? And maybe like the second project actually led to different improvements than the first one? Or yeah, how was it looking in terms of like the experiments and then the concrete applications? The state marginal matching paper was using uh, the much uh, lo lower dimensional states uh, available in Mujoko. Um, so it was not using vision. Uh, in the weekly supervised RL paper, we were using visual observations. So the observation space was much uh, higher dimension. Um, mm. The action space uh, in both uh, papers were continuous control actions. Yeah, I guess uh, same marginal matching, we also looked at locomotion tasks and uh, in the weekly supervised RL, we looked at manipulation. Um, I think uh, both are um, common benchmarks in uh, robotics for RL. Mm -hmm. Yeah, I see. So like one thing that you were talking about is that it kind of relies on having this um, density model, right? So do you think that density models are getting more powerful or maybe they learn faster and that there could be like new applications of this method now that we have more powerful density models or yeah. How do you think about that? Yeah. Great question. Density modeling has definitely improved. Uh, for example, a uh, real MVP is one example. And uh, in the uh, original state marginal matching work, we just used a VAE density model, but um, we can use much more powerful um, density models uh, that are more recent. And in terms of new applications, so in a very high dimensional environment, uh, most of the search space uh, will be meaningless and you don't need to explore over everything. 
And uh, if the state space is infinite, uh, then the state entropy maximization objective becomes an ill-defined problem. And so uh, how can we do intelligent, efficient exploration in an open system like that is uh, an open problem. Um, so uh, yeah, one way to do that would be to try to learn a good state representation that informs the agent how it should explore along which state dimensions and other um, relevant uh, problems are lifelong learning and transfer learning. Yeah, I see. And so then it, would this kind of be a, like you mentioned the lifelong learning and transfer learning, is this kind of another shift? Like we talked about the shift from like single task to multitask. Is this another kind of like shift that's happening in reinforcement learning? Yeah, definitely. A lot of people are yeah, interested in uh, learning many tasks with a single agent. Um, and especially um, following uh, the large language models results uh, in recent years uh, in the NLP mm. community. I think RL researchers are trying to exploit transformer-like architectures uh, that can also learn many different tasks uh, in a single model. In, in terms of the weekly supervised RL, like one thing I, that I was thinking about as I was reading through is that it was kind of suggesting a certain level of supervision or like a certain place where humans kind of come into contact with reinforcement learning agents, right? Like we could imagine designing a reward function or like specifying the state distribution or here it's like providing annotation for these um, factors of, of variation. So like if we like zoom out, what where are the other places where humans might be interacting with machine learning or um, reinforcement learning systems? Yeah, um, that's a great question. In terms of uh, human agent interaction, it seems that there, I've done some literature survey on yeah human agent RL uh, interaction with RL, and it seems that it's a, a pretty new uh, research direction. There's not a lot of uh, work on uh, these like high dimensional robotic tasks uh, uh, with uh, human uh, labels uh, interweave within. And um, I think there will be a lot of new uh, works coming out in this direction in the next couple of years. Um, in terms of where to get this supervision, uh, there's a lot of large uh, offline data sets uh, uh, generated by humans, uh, which can be in the forms of text, uh, images, videos, and um, learning from these uh, large uh, language and vision data sets uh, is also um, a really interesting direction that a lot of RL researchers are looking at today. Uh, for example, uh, Third-person imitation uh, comes to mind. Uh, if a robot could watch a YouTube video of how to chop onions uh, and watch a human do it and then try to imitate that, uh, uh, would be one example. Yeah, I see. Yeah, yeah. Another is like, aren't some of these? Isn't some of the um, supervision obtained by like tele operation? That was kind of interesting to see. 
yeah, teleoperation is one way to provide expert demonstrations. Um, the one weakness is that it's a lot of engineering to set up this teleoperation effort. So it might not be available in all robot systems. Yeah. Yeah. So certainly something like this third person perspective. And if it's from a video, then it's like gradually relaxing the assumptions that we have, I guess, on the supervision. Yeah. In terms of like language, um, like one of the big shifts that's happened is in terms of self-supervision, right? So we have language models. We could define this language modeling objective or like masked language modeling objective and then kind of just like run it on massive amounts of text and kind of surprising things happen. Um, or the model becomes like very useful for fine tuning on a downstream task. Has there been some like equivalent movement or um, is this like an active area of research in terms of reinforcement learning, uh, this idea of like self-supervision? So um, there is a lot of work, a lot of people trying to uh, utilize attention-based architectures like transformers for RL. Um, and oh, two examples are decision transformers and trajectory transformers that are recent papers that came out. And they tried, uh, in terms of the transformer architecture, they are known to be really good at long-term memory. Um, and uh, it makes sense that it would be helpful in RL as well. One uh, one difference between language and RL tasks is that um, if you think about um, text as a trajectory, uh, let's say each state is a word, um, each state is, uh, the states are partially observable. And uh, this and that's why transformer architectures are so good at, uh, uh, so, if it, uh, so effective on text because uh, it, it has long-term memory. But in RL uh, trajectories, if you look at trajectories in RL um, states, uh, we usually assume uh, they're Markovian, meaning that uh, it's, you have complete information. So you don't have this partial observability in uh, a lot of classic RL settings. So it's not clear how uh, these uh, like long-term memory uh, capability of transformer-like architectures can benefit RL, but um, researchers are definitely uh, trying to figure that out uh, right now. Oh, and in terms of self-supervision, definitely um, it's, uh, uh, especially, um, unsupervised learning from a lot of offline data. Uh, uh, I think uh, this is the focus of offline reinforcement learning, uh, where you assume you have a large data set of trajectories and you learn completely from that offline data without any interaction uh, with the online environment. And mm -hmm. uh, there has been uh, um, representation learning objectives you can uh, learn from the offline data, um, for example, uh, there's a paper that uses contrastive uh, represent, uh, representation learning objective uh, on the offline data to learn uh, the transition dynamics in the environment and then use that to do imitation learning, for example. Mm, I see. Yeah, and, and like another surprising thing has been that, I mean, even if you think about like the difference between language maybe and code, it's like not the exact same thing, but there's some transfer between those two in the sense like you could train on a lot of language and you're a bit better at code. And then you could make it a bit 
crazier. Like you could train on even some like synthetic environments and then be better at language. And so I wonder if like, like these large language models might actually be useful for like (laughs) these reinforcement learning tasks that there's a set of like things that it learns, which are kind of independent of the specific, you know, form of language. On the topic of language, maybe we could like go back to the thesis. So the last section was on these like embodied tasks. And one idea that you were talking about was like one way of specifying goals for agents could be through language because it's it's really flexible. Yeah, what was kind of the backstory of working on this embodied setting? And yeah, do, do you see this as like an interesting area? Yeah, um, the problem of combining RL with language uh, is uh, very interesting, um, especially uh, with the recent large-scale uh, language models. Um, um, language, uh, these yeah, these large language models could uh, provide RL agents with better generalization capabilities uh, when they're operating in the real world and have to interact with. Uh, very diverse uh, environments and objects and scenes. In terms of, uh, you mentioned, uh, you mentioned uh, one uh, way of specifying goals is through language. Um, so uh, in terms of, um, uh, there's a distinction between uh, higher level abstractions uh, like language uh, where you can communicate uh, goals and ideas and concepts. And then there's uh, the lower level actions such as mortar primitives that uh, like continuous control RL looks at and um, and how to combine uh, these two uh, is uh, is an open research effort. Um, and in terms of uh, specifying goals, um, I, I actually think existing robotics benchmarks in RL, um, they're very limited uh, in terms of uh, the diversity of scenes and tasks. Uh, so um, there, it's not clear whether language can benefit greatly uh, in these uh, very limited tasks. Um, In terms of instructions for manipulation robots, uh, they're very limited currently. Uh, The instructions look like move object A to location B, uh, and you can change A and B to different uh, objects and locations, or like open door, close door, so it's a lot simpler than natural language that people use to communicate with each other and uh, uh, that you can find in large uh, text data. So mm-hmm. yeah, there's this gap uh, between uh, the existing RL tasks and uh, what language can actually do uh, in today's uh, models. I see, yeah, yeah. So I guess like potentially the benchmarks they're not like complex enough to potentially benefit from the flexibility of language. Yeah, one thing I was wondering about the embodied setting, when you actually go to write down the you know reinforcement learning problem that you're solving and the method that you're using, is it actually the same methods for this uh, setting, which is referred to as like embodied RL or embodied AI, or are there kind of like different challenges which require something fundamentally different, if that makes sense. There are many ways to specify on um, like a design on RL problem. So you have to design the state space, action space, rewards, dynamics, uh, maybe a discount factor. And 
the embodied setting is uh, pretty specific in that you have an agent that controls a physical body uh, to move through the world and affect the physical environment with its actions. So um, challenges specific to the embodied setting uh, that might not hold in a lot of other RL applications, uh, which could include discrete actions and discrete uh, states. Uh, yeah, some challenges are that uh, the open world is very high dimensional. Um, uh, it's inherently multi-agent uh, since mm. the agent is one of many other agents in the scene. And there's a lot of non-stationarity and exogenous noise. Uh, but in terms of uh, methods, a lot of RL algorithms can, uh, they're, they're designed to be very general, um, but um, some methods might have weaknesses in say large action spaces or large state spaces. And there are ways to fix, uh, uh, for example, um, if a RL algorithm struggles in high dimensional states, you could try to combine that RL algorithm with a, representation learning algorithm to uh, make the state space a lot smaller, for example. Mm -hmm. So here you were coming up with this, this architecture, right, for cross-task knowledge transfer? Yeah, uh, in that uh, work, uh, we introduced an attention-based architecture to align words in an instruction or question, which is a yeah, language uh, text and align that with objects uh, that is detected in the agent's visual observations, and also align that with the actions of the agent. Uh, so it's a series of attention operators to align everything. And, uh, and, and because of this uh, alignment and uh, modular architecture, you're able to uh, be able to generalize uh, to uh, instructions uh, and questions that you haven't seen in the training set before. Uh, for example, um, you could learn the concept red, uh, the color red uh, from one instruction and then be able to generalize uh, the learned concept red to another unseen question and know how to map that color red to what it sees in the observations oh i see yeah yeah so you could get this like compositionality so then after working on this and you know thinking back to the robotic manipulation tasks kind of like what areas um did you find most interesting and then like how does that translate into kind of what you see yourself working on uh next now that you've completed the phd yeah um currently um very interested in unsupervised reward-free RL, uh, learning without any reward functions. And uh, the available data could be offline uh, data trajectories, uh, or it could be uh, online interactions, uh, but uh, there are no reward labels. In terms of um, areas that I'm uh, planning to work on, uh, I. I I guess post-PhD, I joined uh, Google Brain, and I feel really fortunate because I have a lot of research freedom and I can set my own research agenda. And there's a lot of um, like larger scale problems that I didn't have access to during my PhD. 
for example, um, there is a robotics team and uh, much more compute and uh, bigger data sets um, in uh, text and language uh, as well. Um, so um, I feel really fortunate to be able to think about like algorithms and uh, maybe tasks, uh, designing tasks that tackle the uh, the larger uh, larger scale RL problem. Um, and um, yeah, in terms of specific, um, more specific uh, research directions, I'm very interested in representation learning for RL um, and uh, transfer learning. Uh, uh, for example, sim to real um, and uh, learning from different observation spaces and or different action spaces. Um, I guess we learned uh, we talked about uh, learning a multitask agent, uh, and that's still uh, it still remains one of my goals uh, today. Mm -hmm. I see. So is there like a, a concrete like picture you keep in your mind of like what type of agent it would be? Like, would this be like a robotic manipulation agent or like a general agent like operating in the world? Yeah, um, for me, this sounds a little bit um, uh, science fiction-y, but I like imagining a robot that plays cello, which... Mm. Uh, or some musical instrument, and uh, it's we are not there yet, but um, it uh, helps us think about what is still not working. And uh, yeah, I guess when you think about it, there's a lot, there's a lot going on when you're playing the cello. <laughs> In terms of like the just the the motions themselves, but then obviously the fact that it like corresponds to what you precisely have to do to get the right notes. Yeah. Yeah, and there are different modalities of observations like sound and proprioception and touch, uh, and um, and how to align these. Uh, so multimodal representation learning, I think, is uh, one thing that RL people haven't really looked at yet, or mm. it's uh, still in early stages, and. Um, um, yeah, when you're playing the cello, um, certain observations don't matter as much. For example, you can play with your eyes closed, so vision isn't as important after you've uh, got a policy that plays uh, the cello pretty well. Um, but vision might be more important when you're starting out uh, learning the cello. So, Yeah, that's interesting. That Actually, going way back to the very first episode of the thesis review, we had Gus Shaw on from NYU Shanghai, and he actually leads this music X lab. And he had some work um, on a robot for playing piano. And then he would, it, it was about accompaniment. That's what it was. So like he'd be playing uh, some wind instrument. I forgot the exact one. It might've been flute. And then the problem is like, how can you have the robot remain in sync with the human player? So yeah, listeners should go back to episode one and listen to all of them up till now. <laughs> and then the uh, to go into like the, the last two questions that I ask on every thesis review, I guess like part of playing the, the cello is actually deciding what the objective function is for like what is good music. So I always ask this, this question about your objective function that you had while you were doing a PhD. Was it about kind of scientific exploration, doing things you were kind of interested in? 
um, what would you say was your objective function and has it kind of changed now that you've finished or stayed the same? Yeah, um, yeah, I would definitely say the scientific exploration and working on problems I think are important uh, is one objective. Um, but um, I guess my main objective was just uh, try to learn as much as possible, especially from people around me and the resources available to me at the time. And so what I learned and the problems I worked on have been largely influenced by the people around me. Um, yeah, I, I guess I mentioned earlier that I like my focus on reinforcement learning was a, a little bit biased because I worked with a PhD student who was also working on RL. And uh, I guess at Google now, I'm, I have opportunity to work on much larger scale problems. Uh, so um, I'm excited to uh, use, uh, utilize those resources available uh, now. And then the last question, um, sometimes the hardest one, is to give one piece of advice for a new researcher. Uh, and it could be a piece of grand advice or just a useful heuristic that you've picked up along the way. Uh, some people actually do both, but it's up to you. Uh, one piece of advice for a new researcher. Yeah, um, I hope I'm not repeating someone. Maybe this is a very generic answer, but I, um, so I learned that research is a collaborative effort and I learned a lot from working with other people especially fellow PhD students in my program. So I, if, if the listener is a starting a PhD student, uh, I highly recommend reaching out to as many people as you can and uh, yeah, and just work and collaborate with them on research projects, even if it might not lead to a publication. Uh, there's still a lot uh, you can learn from other people. Yeah, yeah, that's really great. So yeah, thanks for so much for coming on the thesis review. This has been great, like going back and uh, reading through your work and then also getting a look at kind of like what's happening in reinforcement learning and how it's even shifted from the time you started your PhD until now. Yeah, I, I really enjoyed having this conversation and also reading through your thesis. So thanks for coming on the thesis review. Thank you so much for having me on the very thoughtful question.